we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics that can go wherever our conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Mr. James Bovark. Jim is a prolific writer, satirist, and social commentator. He's the author of 10 books whose ideas have been publicly denounced <laughs> by 12 federal agency chiefs and cabinet secretaries, including the FBI, DEA, FEMA, TSA, and the Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of HUD, as well as by the Washington Post and the ACLU. I don't think that leaves much left, but you can tell us. So, Jim, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Oh, I've just been uh, enjoying throwing rocks at the government. There's, there are so many um, great targets coming down the road here. I, I, I've got to say, uh, I certainly appreciate being introduced as a satirist, because, I mean, uh, uh, that was how I got my start in writing. I mean, um, it was, I was lucky that a college degree was not necessary to write satire. No, just common writing. sense. <laughs> uh, uh, what's that? Just common sense. Uh, common sense and a, um, you know, a sense of irony and uh, sometimes a sense of outrage. So, uh, but uh, so what about, so I was thinking uh, earlier this week about my affection for American Airlines. Uh, I was flying out of uh, Hartford on, uh, um, I was supposed to fly out um, uh, Sunday afternoon after the Brownstone Conference and so I had a flight lined up from there to National at 5:40 direct flight, and I'm, you know I'm getting all uh, getting ready to launch out of the hotel, check out. 10:30, I you know I get two emails in a row. First is from American Airlines. Oh, we have news. Uh, turns out your flight today is canceled, and, and so I was you know so I dusted off my profanity, and and then I got a second email that that had good news that my flight had been rescheduled for eight o'clock instead of 5.40. And, you know, I kind of like, oh, that, well, you know, that kind of sucks. And then I looked at the small print, it was for the next day. And so I was supposed to wait around until Monday evening. And so I was, um, I was perturbed. So I was, you know, so I dial up, you know, I tracked down their damn 800 number. I dialed them up and uh, waiting, uh, you know, they, uh, they said, okay, um, Wait times between 38 and 45 minutes. And I was saying, well, that's fine. I wasn't, I was going to stare at the wall anyhow this morning. Uh, so while I was waiting, I was, I said, let's check Amtrak because, you know, I got to head south. So the Amtrak web, uh, webpage didn't work. I mean, it's, you know, so, so in that sense, it harmonized perfectly with the Amtrak trains. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it uh, has the same masterminds. Then I was checking Hertz for a rental car that wasn't working. And then I was checking other options. So I was finally, um, you know, finally someone answers and uh, I say, hey, uh, my flight was canceled. Yeah, but we have you rescheduled. Yeah, well, you know, there's no way in hell I'm going to spend another night in Hartford. 
Well, let me see what I can do. And it turned out that there was one seat available in the flight that afternoon out of Hartford at 1.30. Can you make it to the airport? I was thinking, yes. I mean, um, you know, I would, I, uh, I'd make it to the airport if I had to hijack an Uber. So, and so I did. And then the flight was delayed three or four times. And then it finally took off around three hours late. But it was a whole lot better than waiting the next day. But it's just kind of funny to see the uh, how that's routine procedure, I guess, for uh, coach travel these days. So, um, well, I had um, uh, flights to go to meetings in Brussels, and, oh. and and we were flying on Air France, and um, the flight was to go from I think it was it was JFK Airport to Paris, and then another leg from Paris to Berlin, where we were going to rent a car and drive, and I had meetings with with colleagues there. Uh, to start with. And the night before we were supposed to leave, Air France canceled the, the Paris to Berlin flight. And so they sent me an email and offered no alternatives. And there were no alternatives. And uh, these were flights that I had paid because I got them well in advance. $500 round trip for the entire thing, which is a really good ticket. Yeah, it's a hell of and, a price. Right. And having to make another ticket, which we lost one night of the trip, but having to make another ticket, the only thing that was available was on Iceland Air, which is the IKEA of, of airlines. Yeah, and, and uh, if you think not as bad as Spirit Airlines, but almost, I, it's about as bottom dwelling as there is. There, there's no terminal. There's only a tarmac. Um, wow. There, there's um, no services, no food, no snacks, no anything. Like I said, and um, and 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 that was sixteen hundred dollars round trip. Whoa. So um, th th thank you, Air, Air France. But apparently we are not the only ones. This is happening rampantly. And the reason is that there aren't enough pilots and there aren't enough ground crews because the airlines fired them all because they refused to be vaxxed. Oh, oh that's great. Uh, that's something that had not occurred to me. Now, they, you know, I've, um, I've, I've flown Air France a fair number of times. And one thing which, uh, which I appreciate them from them is a stewardess doing doing the announcement in Air France English, <laughs> and it's kind of like you're kind of squinting and you're you're almost falling. And it, it 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 makes me feel better about almost failing French in high school. So uh, you know because my French is about on par with their English. Well, uh, you know, since you've already, I'm sure now by now memorized exactly everything they were saying anyway, it probably doesn't really matter. Well, I wasn't really paying much attention. I was just kind of, uh, um, it didn't hold my attention until I see smoke. <laughs> so that's in the forward section. Uh, or as we used to say, air chance. Yes, that's a good term for it. Yes. So um, what about, you know, I, you know, I've been railing. I, I would talk to the Brownstone about this, but I've been railing more generally about the substitution of plausibility for logic that anytime. You try to you ask a question about any government official, um, any um, uh, administrative staff person in the government, whatever you get. If you get an answer, most of the time that you won't get an answer. But if you get an answer, you get some bland, plausible, plausible statement that seems at first blush to comport with thought, and then you realize that these are canned pre-produced messages that have no relationship to actually any common sense or any knowledge base and, and that it's it's like 
you know, vaccines equal good. That's that's the most that we can reason. And so therefore we have to say that, and we, we're going to say it in 12 different ways, but that's all we're really saying that there's no critical thought in these kinds of messages. And this comes out day in, day out. The, the CDC says, well, we're now going to implement the changes that it, the, the last uh, um, director of the CDC talked about, uh, which was that we didn't do such a good job communicating. And so we're going to communicate with the American people better, which to me says they're going to learn how to lie better so that the lies are better communicated because that's all they've done. And, you know, and, and this is just rearranging the deck chairs. Um, you know, they're the Titanic. Nobody believes anything coming out of the CDC. And the CDC is just, you know, telling us, oh, we're going to communicate better. You know, how can you take a person like that seriously? Well, I mean, it's uh, um, and, and you know, I had high hopes that Mandy Cohen would help restore faith in the agency, but it doesn't seem to be happening. It's interesting with the FDA. There was a, a statement. Uh, the uh, current director, Mark, what's the guy's name? Um, Not Cambrill or something like that. I, I've forgotten. Well, anyhow, he was uh, he was given a statement last year, and it, he said that the disinformation was a leading source of death in America. So, so, so journalists pushed the agency, and um, and uh, so the agency finally admitted that they had no data, they had nothing on that. And so, so the thing that the the director did is he said, "Well, you know, I'm still working on that statement, but it's safe to say that disinformation is a leading cause of premature death in America." And they still don't have jack squat of data. It's just pulling it out of his backside, and it's like, "Oh, he's the director. He must know more than we do." Well, this is typical that um, the the nudge behavior trying to compel people to change their health-related behaviors in ways that they think are desirable and rational thought doesn't think is desirable. It's just, it's such a bizarre thing today that almost all of the science coming out of the CDC, at least the epidemiology that comes out of there, is all fatally flawed, that they use the wrong methods, they use the wrong um and, and forms of analyses for the way they design studies. They cherry pick the answers to, to come up with, with the results that they, they want to find or they preordained. That this is not the way a scientific agency is supposed to work. That the, the agency is supposed to be, or at least try to be, as objective as it can with facts and guide policies that go for if not political ambitions that at least comport with the facts and not contradict the facts. But but so what we get is that they hide the data that contradicts their policies and they refuse to do any data gathering that might jeopardize their policies. And so, for example, we know that there are hundreds of thousands of stored blood samples in the United States in scientific studies, in deep freezers, in laboratories in universities all across the country from gathered from studies doing work in 2019 the whole year uh, you know people do research studies. i do research studies other people do research studies. everybody's doing these research studies and we get blood samples and we put them in the freezers we take out aliquots and we analyze them for what we're interested in and we keep the rest in the freezers well the cdc could have come along and said we want small aliquots and we'll pay you to thaw them and give them to us so we can analyze them for antibodies to COVID. 
And so they could have done this across the entire 2019. And this would have cost, as research goes, almost nothing. To thaw and send aliquots, you know, is about $10 a sample. And, and to process them is it is it in a lab is about another forty dollars a sample so fifty dollars a sample you know you you run a thousand samples scattered across labs all over the U.S. you know it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars out of the CDC budget of billions you think this is anything no so they could have been doing this they studiously avoid asking questions that might address things that they don't want to find out because it would undermine their preconceived goals. And this is the problem, why nobody trusts them. Because they don't want, basically, anything threatening their control of the narrative okay. for their reasons. Yeah, so so what exactly was the goal of the CDC at that point, and, and then in 2020? Well, the goal of the CDC, in general, is to be the country's main infectious disease um, management agency uh, in terms of research and technology and data analysis. So the CDC, and not just can, not just infectious, the CDC collects all the cancer data across the country, it collects all the state level data of various things, and it's in theory, organizes it, cleans it, analyzes it. However, my understanding from the insides of, of all of that is that each state is kind of wobbly and the amount of time and money that a state will put to data collection in the first place may or may not be good. And so what the CDC gets is at the mercy of all the different states. And so the CDC may be purporting to say, we've got all this good data, like it did, for example, if you remember way back in, in toxic shock syndrome in the early eighties and, um, and, and but you know it wasn't it, it was reporting that it had great data when it turns out that a third of the states weren't even reporting to the CDC at all. Wow! And so it's it's I don't understand why they would. I mean, the CDC really should be given another fifty million dollars a year just to run staff in all of the state public health agencies to be able to make the data rational and objective and clean and usable. But, you know, but who's going to fund them now when they've done such a calamitous job of misrepresenting everything in COVID? So it's too bad, really, because they should have been cleaned up. And the director of the CDC, so Bob Redfield, um, when he was director, did try to get more money for the CDC to do this. And the federal government, I think Congress refused to allocate it. So it never went anywhere. But this is really the problem that you can't have a quick and dirty, cheap type of agency that does this kind of function and expect it to be high quality when you're not putting enough money behind it. Now, I'm not saying you put money behind it and doesn't get funneled off into pet projects in you know in somebody's backyard, but, but in, in general, you really need to be pushing the programs that do the objective job without um, inflicting political or narrative issues onto the, the the science part well that's a heck of a challenge there was was it john barry who did the uh, book on the influenza he's and barry said that uh, he said that if you mix politics and science what you get is uh politics right and then you subtract politics from each side of that equation and you get science equals zero 
<laughs> okay, that's good. I had not heard that follow-up. That's good. So, um, you know, we've been left with so much distrust between the CDC and FDA and other agencies that what I said that you had been publicly denounced by all these agencies, we are now doing the denouncing. You know, we are denouncing them because they don't know what they're doing. They really don't. Well, I think that's been true for a long time. Uh, back in the 90s, I wrote about the FDA for a Wall Street Journal and American Spectator and some other places. And it was that was back when David Kessler was the uh, king rooster there. And uh, he was uh, very, um, it was like an endless photo op for him. And they had the high profile seizures of orange shoes. And, you know, they were just trying to rule by intimidation. And it was really unsavory because instead of clear rules, it's like, you know, fear us. And somehow that's going to make people uh, healthy. It, you know, it didn't work. Yeah, it's true. And I think that the FDA, um, you know, in that period, going back um, 20 years, there has been a lot of congressional meddling, the FDA, from both parties. Yep. And, uh, and whistleblowers have come out, and there's lots of documents, and you can find them on the internet, talking about congressional pressure again to the FDA to get them to make decisions in favor of one direction or the other um, that they did, they, that they have succumbed to this kind of pressure. And that's why I took a whistleblower to identify it. So we don't really know the degree to which there has been external pressure on these agencies. And uh, we're coming to a commercial break. So let's return to that when we come back. So everybody, please stay tuned. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds the digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. 
thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Mr. Jim Bovard. So we were talking about external influences on the FDA and, in fact, on the CDC also. And you know, what, what's really astonishing to me is that both of these agencies have what are called foundations, private foundations, the, the foundation for the FDA, the foundation for the CDC. These are charitable foundations that get money, that apply that money to probably tailored or targeted work done within the agencies. And you can guess who gives money to those charitable foundations, but Pharma and Gates. Wow. And so it's illegal to give, for private people to give money to government regulatory agencies. Obviously that would corrupt the agencies because they're regulatory. So what they did is they established charitable foundations to launder the money. And this is all public knowledge. And we've gone on, gone along with this for years. This is the first thing that has to be closed. That it, what we've learned is that money buys allegiance. That means when you spend money as a charity, as as an advertiser, um, as a, an NGO, whatever it is that you spend money on, if you keep spending the money, the person receiving your money gets addicted to it and 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 is forced to be compliant with the messages that you as the spender want to have. So for example, when you buy when pharma buys ads in normal, you know, legacy media, those ads are there 24/7 practically. You'll see if you if you watch TV after midnight, it's ads for medications for old people and the rest of the time it's medications for women's products. And you know, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea that sure. the um all of this advertising revenue then pushes out small other advertisers that, that because there's so much coming from a dedicated source that the the media become dependent on this and then they can't put up messages contrary to the interests of the pharma that are, are supporting the media and they did pharma did this in part because part of the legitimacy of knowledge about medical products is who's responsible for the informed consent to patients. It turns out that it's actually, it's not the pharma company that's responsible, but doctors. So pharma has an obligation to inform doctors of the technical issues surrounding the information they give to patients. And then the doctors have the responsibility of providing informed consent to patients. Now, what the pharma has learned is you could put all this stuff on these ads. So all of that high um, fast speech gobbledygook at the ends of the ads in the fine print and, and so on is gets pharma off the hook for talking to doctors. Really? So, yes. So wow. uh, as far as I understand, I'm not an attorney, so I'm, I'm not making legal statements here, but, but my understanding is that provides the information uh, that doctors can use and can follow up if they want more so that the pharma can say, we've notified the doctors about what's relevant and it's their job to 
uh, notify patients and discuss pros and cons with patients, and we're off the hook with patients. So pharma is not just buying PR for their drugs. It's buying the responsibility of offloading the, the information to doctors, and it's buying the allegiance of the media all, all in one. And so they get a great deal. They get a threefer, you know, in, in, in paying for that. Same with, with medical journals. The pharma supports medical journals and, and editors and so on. And then those, those journals become addicted to the revenue. They couldn't support their, their editors' salaries without the pharma income. Oh, that's and so the, so the journals, line. this has been complained about by um, the New England Journal of Medicine. Marsha Angel wrote a book, I think in 2005 over this. Richard Horton at The Lancet has been talking about this for over a decade. This is This is pure and simple corruption of those journals you know, and they purport to be high quality, top of the of the line medical journals, but I refer to them as the New England Journal of Mendacity. You know, that this is this is not objective when you're what you're allowed to say is corrupted by your funders. It's just not objective. So how much of a change do you expect to uh, happen because of the uh, the controversies around COVID policies and some of those disasters? Are, are there going to be any changes? Well, as you see now, all of the officialdom is doubling down on all of the things they're saying. They're, they're, it's like a lot of the population already knows that the vaccines have failed to live up to the description of that they will stop the virus transmission and that they will protect people from getting you know, severely ill or dying from COVID and that they have no harm, that they're, they're completely safe. Those messages have all been broken in the minds of most Americans today. And this is why, for example, there was only the uptake of the most recent booster before the one, the new one coming out was only 17% across the population because people know that the, the vaccines have failed. The vaccines, if they worked, worked a little bit in the first period uh, when they first came out in early 2021. Not now. I'm not talking about the deaths that they caused over that period, but no. just whether what they did for people. But it turns out that the more shots you get, there's evidence, good evidence now that that the more likely you are to get COVID. You have a higher risk of getting COVID if you've had more shots of the vaccine, and you know, and and I, I, it's like I know people who've had three and four shots who've had COVID three and four or five times. It's a, you know, it's kind of absurd. Even if many of those times they were, it was not very bad, it was just a cold or so. But still, this is very diminishing returns. And now we have worries of, about damage to the immune system in other realms, other for other infectious diseases, other chronic diseases that are immune modulated like cancers and other things. These are now big worries that people are going to have to try to understand. And of course, we're going to be gaslighted over those things, just like we've been gaslighted over the damage caused by the, the vaccine so far. Um, so, so how much more information do you think we'll get in the next year or two about the um, midterm or long-term damage from the mRNA COVID vaccines? I think it's taking independent uh, people to do that work because the federal government and the medical societies that are all corrupt will not touch that. They don't want to know the answers to those questions. Okay. And for example, uh, Medicare puts out data on nursing homes. 
And I guess they're compelled by law. They haven't stopped putting out the data yet. Uh, and so they have all-cause mortality by, you can, and it's pretty granular data. You can see for each nursing home across the country that they have their mortality by week starting from 2020. It probably goes back earlier, but for, for our relevance, starting from 2020 and 2021 and, and so on. And so you can look at the average more and 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 you can look at the COVID incidents also. Um, there's data on that from weeks before that. So you can calculate reasonable estimates at the infection mortality rate. So if you use COVID from two to three weeks earlier than the than the death data, the COVID data before the death data, then that's about the latency for people who die from COVID. You can, it's, it takes about three weeks to for that to be one relate to the other. If you look at deaths after vaccination, our study that uh, Nick Hulsher wrote, that, the paper that's on Zenodo with, with Peter McCullough, that one shows that for the deaths that were clearly evidentially associated with vaccination, three quarters of them happened within four days. Four days. Within four days. Wow. So... <laughs> You can do the calculations to figure out the mortality based on COVID and based on vaccination in the nursing homes. And, and you can time this according to a calendar period, the weeks of each year. And Steve Kirsch has actually done this and has worked out the data. He put all of his code on GitHub so you could actually rerun it yourself. The data are all available. You could download them from Medicare, so it's all public data. And it shows that the mortality risk in nursing homes, I think came, was like more than double, this is all cause mortality, was double after the vaccines were rolled out than before. Wow. And so, you know, we this is the kind of evidence that we're forced to use because CDC refuses to do these things themselves in any objective way. They're desperately running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to figure out how to sell vaccine safety with data that they, they have. And the fact is that their data obviously aren't showing anything because they have reams of data that they're not, not talking about. When the vaccines first came out, they said publicly they had mortality and adverse event data from seven or eight databases, including insurance databases, hospital information, Medicare, their own uh, CDC programs, and so on, that they had seven or eight different sources of data, um, including the VARES database and VSAFE, which they've terminated, by the way. And so what happens? The vaccine rollout, people start dying, people start dying, you know, for no apparent cause, all this stuff. Uh, people start getting myocarditis and all all of this. And what does the CDC do? It stops reporting. It doesn't report from all the data it said it had that it was going to report. Wow. Now you can understand if you have data to prove your arguments, you would be the first to use those data to report. Yeah. Right? So the fact that they have such data and are not reporting it is basically evidence that they do not have supporting data showing that the vaccines are safe. They have, if anything, data showing that the vaccines are not safe for all-cause mortality. And is that something that people were filing 
Freedom of Information Act request to try to squeeze out of them, or is it uh, is it a fight? It is a fight, and they did that. There was one because the CDC at one point said that they had done an empirical Bayes, uh, which is a uh, fancy, but in my opinion, not very good uh, statistical method for extracting signals and information out of the VAERS, V-A-E-R-S database on vaccine adverse effects. And then they refused to divulge what the results were. And so an FOIA was filed on that. And, And what happened was there were two different reports. One person from CDC said, we have done that analysis. And another one said, we haven't done that analysis. And of course, they have the data, so they should have done the analysis. So it was correct to say that they did. But anyway, then they denied having done the analysis. Then the FOIA was submitted. And then they said, uh, we're not going to comply with the FOIA. And so we went to court. And so I think that's where it's battling now, that the CDC is demanding not to produce the results of their empirical-based analysis of the adverse events from the vaccines. Now, why in the world would you do something like that? Why would you hide data if those data showed what you claim, that the vaccines are safe? Uh, it's a paradox. Not a paradox. There's yeah, motivation. facetious. Right. Motivation is, is that anything that reduces your tension, your stress you put out there, anything that, that's on your side of the equation you put out there. Yeah. yeah. If it's not out there, it's not on your side of the equation. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of the FDA claiming they would need 75 years to disclose the uh, Pfizer uh, COVID uh, full approval VAX application. Well, they would. They did because they didn't have the personnel to redact all of the, the mountain of, of so-called proprietary information from all the forms. They just well, had 75 years is kind of long. And I was, I was glad to see a federal judge put his boot where the sun doesn't shine on that. So Well, he just said, go and hire another thousand people and then do it in, in my time frame. Well, that's that's better than what the alternative was. So, um, I mean, that's the same trouble I have with FOIA. I've fought federal agencies on FOIA going back decades, and I've had I've gotten screwed so many times. There was the uh, somebody wanted me to investigate the Peace Corps in their 25th anniversary, so I did. And the Peace Corps had done uh, they had a really good inspector general back in the 60s and early 70s who had done these had done the done these great reports. And so, so I filed a FOIA and asked to see, see these reports. Um, and so, uh, so the uh, the lawyer and their uh, general counsel, I was said, "Oh, there's so many reports; it'd be so bothersome. It would really help if instead of asking for those reports, the full reports, if you just ask for the executive summaries." And I said, "All right, okay, fine." You, you know, and and the clock was ticking; I was on deadline. And so I waited two weeks, three weeks until the time for them to give out the uh, those summaries. And I, I head down there and I say, okay, uh, where's the information? He said, well, I got some bad news. It turns out that, that instead of executive summaries, that those reports had abstracts. So you've got to start over and file a new request. <laughs> I, w- I was, um, that helped flavor the tone of my article on that agency because I was like, oh my goodness. But I've been screwed lots of times. I've you know, I've gone to agencies and people just laugh in my face, ha ha ha. And it's like, well, you know, that was a mistake. So anyhow. Well, that's been the prevailing um 
practice of catch me if you can, that all of our government agencies uh, and administration and executive bodies in states and the federal government are just making laws and rules right and left, willy-nilly, whatever they want to do. And then, they're, you know, we have to go to court to fight them, which takes years and money and, and so on, which we are doing and takes time, but it, it, it takes time. And meanwhile, they get away with a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a parody of the rule of law where we can't even find, cannot even find what the government has done until X number of years later. I mean, on U.S. foreign policy, it's horrendous, uh, but uh, yeah, that's a different topic. Well, I don't know how different different it is because we get plausibility on that too. You know that the government lies to us and makes us think things like Ukraine is winning. You know, just one more <laughs> battle. And, yeah, right. You know, right? I, and you know that's an interesting example because, uh, as I mentioned, I guess um, I think I mentioned it on Saturday at Brownstone. You know, the the uh, the um, the uh, White House put out this press release saying that it was given a thirty-five, forty billion dollar. Uh, aid package to Ukraine, and part of that was forty or fifty million dollars to support the independent media of Ukraine. And you know they'd be independent because the U.S. government had the sales receipt. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a huge con uh, confusion is the wrong word, but there are so many nonprofit and other entities the U.S. government is funding on uh, for the Ukraine side, and and a lot of those put out reports stories, whatever, and that gets picked up by the American media. And so a lot of what the U.S. media coverage is, is simply the um, 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 simply stuff from U.S. funded entities in Ukraine or nearby. Right. So basically, you're saying you can't trust them. And, and we know we can't trust the, the Russian propaganda on their side. Oh, and I agree completely. I mean, it's it, it's frustrating to me. Uh, you know, say there's three major governments involved in this. I don't trust any of them. Right. So. Well, we got to another commercial break. So let's take a pause and we'll be back very soon. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. 
Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Mr. Jim Bovard. We were just discussing why we can't believe any anything, anybody, anywhere anymore. Well, in particular, the, 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 the Ukrainians, the Russian information about the war and the United States and its involvement and, and how it's been handling things with, with them all. Um, you know, we have uh, the CIA that's meddled in everything. And in, to some degree, some of that early on in some cases has been in our interest. But a lot of CIA meddling fails. You know, we think of it as rogue a lot. And it really, it's not clear who is directing the, the, the CIA operations. It doesn't, it, it, from what I can tell from the people that I've heard, that there's a lot of independence in the different groups within the CIA to run operations. They're all separate. They don't communicate with each other. And the director may or may not know exactly what's going on. And it's, it's like the, the whole thing is amok because one needs cogent understanding of, of foreign policy in a way that maintains our interest. Now, our interest isn't in bullying the Russians so that they launch a war in Ukraine and use up half their armaments and, and it weakens them because they'll build back up. They have a, a perfectly good uh, ability to remake armaments. And we're using up ours. We're sending so much of our armaments to Ukraine. And that's get, those things are getting siphoned off. Yeah, I don't know what fraction, but a substantial fraction are getting siphoned off and going to arms dealers all across South America and other places. You know, or they're all being blown up, you know, be, in, being used that there it's like you don't lo give loans to people so they can buy food because they end up eating it and the money just disappears. You give loans to people to do constructive things like start a business or make a business run or something that that generates money in return that you can put back into circulation so that the, the loans is just a way of lubricating the economic cycle, not using up the money. And what we've done is we've given money, you know, and armaments to Ukraine that just get blown up. So what is the point of blowing up, you know, money, basically, by pushing it through the Ukraine mill? I, there's just There's just no benefit to it because it's not changing anything of any substance. It's not keeping the Russians from overtaking the Donbass. It's not enabling the Ukrainians, you know, to defend against that. They're basically in just a, um, a combat that's using up equipment, materiel, and bodies. So, you know, so what is what is the real purpose of this? It's, you know... This it, is the question. That is the question. Because, okay, it, it, it's, it does not seem to have much benefit for the for the Ukrainians because they're getting slaughtered and and they aren't winning. Uh, it's certainly not helping the Russians. I mean, I don't know what kind of. I mean, there's so much money. Uh, there's so much corruption in Ukraine, and there are so many American entities and politicians who have profited from that. Uh, Joe Biden's own family, you know. Uh, <laughs> there is a question: What do the um, what kind of information is there in the in the government files in Ukraine? Uh, I mean, it's certainly it's it's a fair question to say, OK, so what uh, what might they have on Joe Biden? It's the same question that the people asked in the previous administration about the Russians and Donald Trump. Uh, so, 
Um, but there is just so many, it, it's, it's, it's amazing how little intellectual curiosity there is in Washington on the Ukraine war. Instead, okay, you put up your flag, you put up your decal, you do this. And as you know, it's like you've satisfied your, your uh, duty, but it's like, there's a lot of very serious questions that very few people are asking. Well, right. You know, it's real easy to do virtue signaling and put your lawn signs out there. And, yep. You know, and what good is, is that? You know, it, 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 nobody's going to change their vote in Congress because somebody's got lawn signs up or because their whole neighborhood's got lawn signs up. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, but I mean, there's very few members of Congress paying attention. There, there have been a number of proposals to appoint a special inspector general for USA to Ukraine. It has had very little support in the Senate. Uh, I, I, it did not pass the House, I don't think. But it's just amazing that you would have these, these people rushing to send $100 billion there. Uh, but let's not ask any questions about where the money went. So, well, the only reason we can do it is because we have a fiat currency. You can just print it, you know. And for the time being, yes. I mean, the um, uh, I think the clock is ticking on that. And it's just, it's scandalous that there's so little concern about, you know, the money that's being wasted. Yep. Oh, I know. I mean, right. Uh, you know, $60 billion for Ukraine and $700 for Hawaii. It, that, that was ugly. That was really ugly. But it's, but um, inside the Beltway, it doesn't matter because, you know, there's, um, I think there's so much money flowing back from Ukraine uh, to the Beltway, to members of, well, to a lot of people. So, um, yes, uh, you know, we can't possibly know that even. Uh, it's astonishing that I feel like any transactions, most of the transactions we do, we do with credit cards. And all that credit card data is probably subpoenaable by the government. And so the government, one way or another, could find out, without CBDCs, could find out wh what we actually spend money on, anybody it, it chose to do that with. It would just say, oh, national security, we need this, you know, emergency, we need this, whatever. And the banks comply. And well, when members of Congress do this, and... They feed their 20 companies, you know, that, that are all secret and, and interlocking and hard to trace through and all that. You know, nobody ever tracks that down. Nobody ever investigates that to see where all that corrupt money is flowing. They get away no. with everything and, and we are, the peons have to deal with, with all of the, the government's control. Yep. I mean, there's there's some digging being uh, done on Congress on the Biden family corruption, but I wish they were digging deeper and faster. Well, right, right. I, and it's been alleged that uh, their in, involvement in, in China has compelled them to be very um, not compliant with, with Chinese goals and needs for the Chinese role in, in um, controlling things happening in America. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but I, it's it's frustrating as hell to me because there's an awful lot of information on these on these questions in government files, and the chance of you or I are seeing them is the same chance as hell freezing over. So uh, every now and then there's a leak, and that's you know this is one of the good things 
about the the Republicans taking over the House is, you know, there's it seems like there's a lot more whistleblowers, and you know, that's about the only way we're going to get the truth these days. I th I think that's right, but um, uh, it's not fast enough, you know. And there's so much stuff happening in so many diverse areas of corruption. It's hard to keep it straight. Every day something new happens, some new decision, uh, you know, uh, against the government, what it did in one way or another. Today was announced the um, the DACA policies. This was of children coming to the United States illegal by the, their parents illegally or being born here from illegal parents. Um, that was established by the Obama administration, was declared illegal, not on the basis of anything you might think, but on the fact that the president does not have the authority to have created such a program. It would have had to have been created by Congress. And so the, the court found against the program on that basis that the president oversteps overstepped his authority. Congress could do this if they want, you know, and who knows what will transpire. But these are the kinds of, of tools. Everybody's using political tools, legal tools to solve political questions. And it's not it's not good that uh, basically the laws passed by Congress over the last twenty or thirty years have had such bad laws. For example, the um, AB two hundred nine eight, the, the bill um, uh, blocking doctors in California from being able to express their true opinions on the safety of the vaccines to patients, uh, which silenced doctors a few some months ago apparently now is the state legislature is writing a law to terminate that bill that um was was originally written by a pediatrician in the legislature and the the reason why they're removing the bill is not the the law is not because doctors shouldn't be blocked from talking about adverse uh, events of, of the vaccines, but because the law itself was so badly worded that nobody can tell what exactly the law is saying because yeah, it, was, it, it was hastily revised and the, revi the revision is unintelligible. So this is why they're going to re revoke it. It's, it's absurd. They need to revoke it because it's wrong. But Yeah. Well, it, it's just interesting. California is supposed to have, have all these geniuses and if you look at the laws that come out there, they are just appalling. A lot of the worst laws in a number of areas in the country. I mean, math education, have you heard what they've done there? I mean, they have just blown up uh, math in public schools. It's appalling. Well, that's okay. You don't need to balance your checkbook. The you know, your <laughs> will do it for you. Ballot, uh, ballot harvesting, as long as you have that, nobody needs to know anything. That's right. Uh, I don't know. You know, I loved California when I grew up there as a young kid and went to college there and all that. Uh, the, um, the the quirkiness allowed for creativity. And what happened over time is that the quirkiness and creativity became fringe so that it got to the point where nobody knew anything, as opposed to being open to new and interesting ideas, even if uh, only half of them turn out to be useful or whatever, that still the idea that you could just hypothesize, I wonder what would happen if, and then go follow your ideas and see where they lead and, and so on. That kind of thinking allows for a lot of creative thought. But did that happen? 
No, what happened is people just, I wonder what would happen if, and they followed idiotic ideas and uh, and it went more and more fringe idiotic. And then the, 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 that is what ended up destroying rational thinking. And, and and so what the education that you're talking about, math education, where it's racist to teach logical thinking, um, is is just irrational. That it's not a matter of one culture thinking that logical thinking is good and another culture thinking that emotional thinking is good. That that's bogus reasoning because we didn't get to our state of standard of living by thinking about emotional thinking. Emotional thinking gets you tribal retribution and each tribe murdering the next generation of the tribe and and so on. That that's what you get with emotional thinking. That emotional benefit is not linear logical thinking benefit. And and so to take that out of normal rational thought is absurd. It's just it's like it's part of the fringe idea that that the, the, the that there's there's got to be some underlying desire to inflict damage on the society that that leads people to be stupid that stupid to make laws and and teach and and teaching programs and so on couched that way because you know we didn't get here without rational thinking yeah well it, it's interesting there's a an old acquaintance of mine bill evers who's been involved pushing back on that. I think he's at Stanford Hoover Institution or was. And so uh, I've been reading his stuff and I, you know, I posted a question for him on Facebook. You know, you have all these activists out there in California pushing for these uh, bizarre reforms. I said, um, I'd like to know what their math SAT scores were, because I, you know, I would bet a lot of them did very poorly in math. And now they're in charge of the show. Oh, but that's racist. Math SAT scores is racist. So, um, I don't know where that came from. I mean, I was, uh, yeah. I mean, um, no, I don't know. What, uh, I'll just leave it at that and, and avoid getting into further trouble. Well, right, but I would argue that none of this is racist because there's people everywhere in every country and every culture who can do this perfectly well. Yep, yep. It's a question of the bell curve. So uh, that that was something I learned. I heard my father talk about my father was a geneticist, an animal geneticist. He went to I. He got his doctorate from Iowa State when Iowa State was one of the best places in the world for animal uh, for beef cattle breeding. Uh, Iowa State had Victor Kempthorne and the the whole genetics, a uh, human genetics program, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Uh, I was not aware of the human genetics program there, uh, but they were. But my father often talked very fondly about some of his major professors out there. And uh, it, it was a question he would often ask me when I was growing up about a certain person or a certain trait, on whether it was inherited or acquired. So he's just trying to get that mind process going early. So mm -hmm. turn me into a damn journalist. I see. Well, I won't ask you about your SAT scores. <laughs> uh, I was surprised by them, but anyhow. Yes. Well, uh... I don't know that we've solved anything here, but uh, it, it's fun to to think about things. The, you know, every generation thinks that their parents' generation knew more, had higher ethical standards, um, did a better job in society, and that the new generations are just not doing as well 
and don't know enough and and so on. And I think that we see it to the degree that our and younger generations have damaged the whole intellectual enterprise yep. of dumbing down the society. And so that is true in, in that regard. Um, I'm not willing to say that just because things change, they're, they're necessarily worse. But on the other hand, there's been so much dumbing down and lack of critical thought in the public domain today compared to a generation or two generations ago. I agree, but uh, part of what concerns me is with the changes with the uh, DSM and uh, and the Disabilities Act, and you've got a third uh, or more college students claiming they've got some type of emotional, intellectual, emo uh, psychiatric disability with uh, anxiety or or, or uh, phobias, or they're you know they've got to have their their their. their comfort animal carrying around 24 seven. Well, you know, maybe they do. And maybe it's because they got too many vaccinations as children. That's interesting. Okay. Maybe so. Yeah. I mean, I was, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I was raised at a time where I, I, I don't, I don't, well, uh, since my mother is not around, I can't ask how many vaccination vaccinations I got, but probably six or seven, maybe eight growing up in the late fifties, early sixties, elementary school in 1962. So, so how many would that be? That I think you know somewhere around eight plus or minus. I think that's about what I got also. Okay. Yeah, and it's and and I, I was not aware of any. Um, um, I was not aware of, of anything which I could blame the uh, vaccines uh, vaccines on the allergy shots. Different story. Yeah, but that's a topic for another conversation. And in fact, we've actually run out of time for today. So I hope everybody's enjoyed our discussion. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. So Jim, thank you for really interesting discussions. And thanks everybody for listening and come back again next week. Thanks for having me on.